Let's, let's pray. Great is your mercy, Lord, and we are gathered because of our great need for it. You are mindful of our weakness, and in your mercy, you give us your strength to trust in. You know our temptations, and you give us the way of escape so we can endure faithfully. You know the trials we all experience, and in each trial, you give us an invitation to trust you. So we confess this morning our need for your mercy. We all need it. No matter how long we have been following you, we need your mercy every day. Forgive us when we think we don't need it. We need your mercy because we have so little of our own. We lack mercy for those who think differently from us. We lack mercy for those who have different struggles from us. We lack mercy for those who have the same struggles as us. So we ask now that you would open our eyes to unseen sin in our hearts and in our lives. Break our hearts now for sin that we have allowed to remain in our lives unchecked. Help us to have mercy for one another in proportion to the mercy you have for us. Thank you for the work you're doing here in our church, Lord. We are humbled to be your witnesses here in Oregon, part of your mission to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. Help us to grow in wisdom and faithfulness so that we can be used to lead many to you. Thank you for using us to support Marcel and the work you are doing in Burkina Faso to train pastors to teach your word and proclaim the good news of your kingdom to more and more of your children. Thank you for Redemption Church in Portland and for Living Water in Vancouver. We pray for these local churches, these local expressions of the bride of Christ. Adorn them with your mercy and set them apart for yourself. Lord, we are committed to following you. Lead us now through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you, Ryan. You guys can have a seat, and you can open to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel 8. When I played basketball, there were many things that I loved. I loved hitting a last-second shot to win the game. As mean as it sounds, I loved dunking on top of people. I loved a great give-and-go play. But one of the things that I absolutely hated, I loathed, I absolutely dreaded was conditioning drills. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Anybody ever do conditioning drills? The worst, right? In high school, we had a coach that was big on conditioning. He wanted us in such good shape that we never tired out. And so he ran us a lot. And I hated those running drills so much that I would work myself up into this psychological frenzy trying to figure out before each workout what we were going to be doing. I hated the pyramids. I hated uh, the line drills. I hated the sweet 16s, all of them. I hated all of them. And so I would even, I know this is sinful for a pastor to say, but I would sneak into his office to find his practice schedule and read what we were going to do. I think he figured it out after a little while and just left his door open so that I could go see it anyway. For some reason, if I knew what was coming, I would be able to endure it. It was the not knowing and then feeling like it would never end while it was happening that actually is what drove me crazy. If I knew it had a set end, then when we got to the actual conditioning drill, even though it was just starting, I could take solace in the fact that even though there was pain, even though I wanted to throw up in the garbage can at the end of the run, even though it was terrible, 
that I could rest in the fact that there was a set end. I could rest in the fact that the pain I was feeling in that moment would not last forever. And at the end, the very reason behind the pain would be apparent to me and would be for my betterment. You see, when it came to the games, because we were so well-conditioned, we could stand in strength at the free-throw line while our opponents had their hands on their knees and were trying to breathe really hard. We knew that it was for our betterment. And seeing the conditioning from that vantage point helped us to endure. Well, in our text this morning, I know that this has nothing to do with basketball, right? So sorry for the basketball metaphor. But Daniel and his fellow exiled Israelites had been in Babylon for many decades at the point that we're at in the book of Daniel. And so they needed similar strength. They needed similar endurance. And chapter 8 places us in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, which is two years after the vision we just looked at in Daniel chapter 7 in the Son of Man, but slightly before the events of the handwriting on the wall in Daniel chapter 5. Now, Daniel had been given a vision that declared that the beastly kings and kingdoms of the world would not have the final say. Instead, God, the Ancient of Days, and his Messiah, the Son of Man, would reign supreme. But two years had now passed. And if Daniel is anything like any other human on the planet, myself included, he would probably be a bit impatient. And if Daniel weren't, well, definitely the Israelites that were exiled would be impatient, wondering when God would give the kingdom over to his people and restore Jerusalem and the temple to its rightful state. To put it plainly, Daniel and the exiled Israelites were in the midst of the biggest trial of their country's history since the Exodus, and they wondered if it would ever end. And so, as we've seen multiple times in the book of Daniel, God lovingly visits his mouthpiece, Daniel the prophet, to give them insight into the heavenly and eternal truths to which only God has visibility. And so, this chapter will follow in the same themes of chapter 7, but zoom in on some specific events that are going to occur, occur at a point in the future from where Daniel sits, but then we can look back on its history and see that they did indeed occur. And seeing this vision and prophecy foretold and then fulfilled should point us to the fact, as our earlier reading declared from Isaiah, that God has a plan, he has a purpose, and he will not be defeated. He knows and has declared the end from the beginning. He will accomplish all his purpose and will bring events to pass. We see the chaos, the lies, around us, the inhumanity and injustice around us, and we experience this feeling of being exiled in a world that does not have the same authority or ideology or worship that we do, and we think that God is powerless to stop the evil. But friends, his plans will not be thwarted. And in this, we can stand firm and strong in our trust of God. We can be strong in our calling and mission to stand in the midst of the evil, proclaiming the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. This morning, in reviewing this prophecy and fulfillment in actual history, we can be given this same encouragement as Daniel and Israel, as if God is speaking to us and saying, take heart, God has determined an end that will not be defeated. Take heart, God has determined an end that will not be defeated. God has determined an end to every trial, to every evil, to every chaos. 
And at that end, we will realize it is really only the beginning. The beginning of life eternal in Christ. At peace with God and with one another in a restored creation. And Jesus will stand at its center in full glory. So take heart, dear saint. God has determined an end that will not be defeated. Well, let's jump into the text in Daniel 8. Would you join me there? And we will read through the whole chapter because we'll be taking pieces from the, throughout the chapter as we break it apart. So let's look there. Daniel chapter 8, verse 1. Give me an amen if you're there. Amen. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. He's speaking about chapter 7 there, two years earlier. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. Now, you should already automatically be thinking through this idea of beasts and kingdoms as we looked at in chapter 7. Verse 5, as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns, and the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. You guys ever seen those nature specials where you got the two rams coming at each other and they butt heads? This is what's going on here between the ram and the goat, but look at what happens. There was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns. So one horn is broken off, four more come up in its place. And these point toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of those horns came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south. And if you're grossed out and you're thinking, this is a really odd-looking goat at this point, you're supposed to be thinking that. It's supposed to be grotesque to your eyes. And he grew great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it, together with the regular burnt offering, because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it, and behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it, uh, and it called, uh, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. 
Because he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. Now, Gabriel, it refers to a strong one. This is not some some weak angel standing before him. This is a warrior of God's kingdom. That's why he is scared. And yet God says, tell him about it. Verse 18, when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. He said, behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. But his cunning he shall make deceit, by his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Now, this section of Scripture, much like a number of chapters in Daniel, have been taken by people throughout, the, especially the last century, and taken, even though they give us an actual plain meaning of what it means, and turned into something that applies to something that isn't spoken of in the chapter. This is often the case with apocalyptic literature, where metaphors and symbols are taken, and even though there's a plain meaning, they say, no, it actually means something else. And so what I want to do is I want to first look at the plain reality of the text and the fact that it gives us the interpretation. And this first point will take a little while to unpack because, uh, well, we're going to nerd out on some history. So if you're a person who's like, oh, history class all over again, put on a hat that's your, your history hat and nerd out with me because this is really good, important stuff. But the first thing that we're going to see here, and we're going to take some time to unpack, is just the fact that Daniel is given a vision of powerful and destructive kings to come. Daniel is given a vision of powerful and destructive kings to come. That's the blatant meaning of this chapter. Now, the kings are going to be named, and we'll see who they are. And you can even take out that word destructive and write in sinful, because they are going to be backed by, especially the last one, is going to be backed by satanic origin, okay? Okay. And so Daniel is given a vision of powerful and destructive kings to come. Now again, Daniel has this vision two years after chapter 7 and slightly before the events of chapter 5, the handwriting on the wall, which that evening Babylon was conquered by Persia. Now in this vision, Daniel was no longer in Babylon, in the city of Babylon, but had been mystically transported to another important citadel or fortress. He finds himself in the city of Susa, which would become the winter stronghold of the Persian kings. You might recall it from the book of Esther. Now there in Susa, Daniel finds himself looking across the major irrigation waterway near the citadel, the Ulai Canal, which branches off the main river uh, near the city and goes around the fortress supplying drinking water and irrigation. 
And he's standing there in this very important place in what would become the Persian Empire to understand the beginning of the vision. On the bank of the canal, Daniel first saw a ram. Now, having been in chapter 7 just last week and the week before, and having fresh in our minds the idea of kings and kingdoms being symbolized by beastly animals, we can know he is speaking here of a kingdom that is to come. This ram is powerful. No matter which direction it goes, west, north, and south, it conquers other beasts or kingdoms. It seems like it's doing whatever it wants. Now, curiously, we know that there is no expansion eastward, and there are two horns, so this should tell us something. Remember that horns symbolize power or authority in apocalyptic writing. And so this one kingdom has two sources of power, and the second one, the one that comes along the latter member of the alliance, seems to be the bigger authority. All of this, as we see in the interpretation, points to the kingdom that would have Susa at its center, the Medes, and the Persians that would conquer Babylon, would conquer the king Belshazzar. Now, this would be the kingdom that so easily conquered Babylon and its king that same very night of the handwriting on the wall in chapter 5. They would become stronger and greater than Babylon ever was and encompass more land and peoples. Now, this is a map of how big their kingdom got. The Persian Empire became huge. But then another beast comes near to the ram. This beast moves quickly from the west. Notice what's west of the Persian Empire. It's the nation that we know as Greece. And it comes so quickly from the west that it seems like his feet don't even touch the ground. Now, he doesn't have two horns, but a single horn that is very visible. And when the goat sees the ram, the goat runs quickly at him in furious rage. He hits the ram with such ferocious power that the ram's two horns are instantly destroyed and broken off. They lose all authority. And the ram is so stunned and harmed that he collapses in front of the goat. But rather than ceasing there, this merciless goat stomps on top of him, asserting his dominance. Kind of like when I used to dunk on somebody. Just kidding. (laughs) At this point, the goat begins to grow. It's like a, a video game where you defeat the boss and you gain their power and then you start getting bigger. The goat grows into and beyond the power and greatness of the ram. And as a kingdom, this kingdom would consume the land and peoples of the Medes and the Persians and grow even beyond that in its size. Before Daniel's very eyes in the vision, the single horn is then suddenly broken off without description. And out of its place grow four horns that are curved to point to the four winds of heaven, another way of claiming the four cardinal directions. In essence, saying this one ruler would be replaced by four that would cover his kingdom. Now, the interpretation that is given shows this to be a Macedonian or Greek king that singularly leads the western kingdom of Greece across the entirety of the Persian Empire. This came to pass when about 200 years after Daniel, in 334 BC, a Greek king named Alexander began a campaign to take down the Persian Empire And a mere 10 years later, his realm had encompassed what you see on this map. He had trampled Persia and had grown even bigger than Persia was. But then history records that Alexander, at the mere age of 33, dies a year later. His life was broken off quickly, without explanation. Now, having only an illegitimate son, an illegitimate and mentally ill half-brother, and a son that had not yet even been born... There was no immediate direct heir that could take the throne. 
For the next two decades, there is drama and intrigue like no other between the various political and military leaders that claim power over portions of his kingdom. There are multiple wars. There are promised and then failed and cheated on political marriages that are meant to bring alliances. There are lies and treachery between kings and their generals. I'm telling you, if you're interested in history and you like soap operas, go read this history. It's insanity over 20 years. Well, the end result is that by 301 BC, the Macedonian or Greek empire is broken into four major kingdoms. These are called the successors of Alexander, if you're, or if you want to get fancy, the word is the Diadochi, the Diadochi, or the successors of Alexander. This is the kingdom of Cassander in Macedonia proper, or Greece, that green color you see there. Uh, then you have the kingdom of Lysimachus in Thrace, or the orange color. And then you have the kingdom of Ptolemy in the south, in Egypt, in blue. And then the kingdom of Seleucus in the east, in what was previously the Persian and Babylonian empire before that. That's the yellow. And Daniel is in that yellow area. Now, these four kings and subregions are what emerge out of the Greek Empire around 301 BC. They are the four horns that did arise, but with power much more fragile than that of Alexander. From one of those areas, though, the Seleucid Empire, Daniel then sees another secondary horn emerge. And this figure comes from that portion of the map, but he is different. The vision does not seem to focus on his earthly power as much as its antagonism of God and God's people. Now, the vision says that his power would extend toward, if you look at it there in chapter 8, toward the glorious land. That's at the end of verse 9, which is a reference to Israel. So the power would go across that yellow area, but move down there into the glorious land of Israel. And this ruler would grow in power, eclipsing all others at the time, and his ego would grow to a place where he claims himself to be a god and is able to trample even on God's authority here on earth. The way he does so is by putting an end to the Jewish morning and evening sacrifice. Now you might think, okay, no big deal. No, that's a huge deal for the Jewish people. Because just like with Daniel and the, the exile of the Israelites, realize that when the morning and evening sacrifice is taken away, the Jewish people have no sacrifice for their sin. They cannot continue in covenant relationship with their God. And so by removing this, this God had set himself up to be worshipped. Now, we being Protestants, we exist in the fact that we are saved by grace through faith. We don't need acts or works in order to save us. But it is interesting how quickly we as Christians over the last 15 months have gotten totally fine with the idea of not gathering together and worshiping Jesus Christ. This was actually judgment on the people of Israel that they're Worship and their sacrifice was cut off. I wonder if it could be judgment on our nation and specifically judgment on the apathy of the American church that we have been meh, okay with not gathering as God's people. It's interesting to ponder. 
Now this, getting back to the Jews, was a very large problem. Without morning and evening sacrifices, as I said, they have no sin offering to purify them. And so this leader here is at war with God and God's kingdom. In verses 10 through 12, it seems to describe this king at war with heavenly armies. Notice the words that are used there in 10 through 12. Phrases like the host of heaven, the prince of the host. Words like host and stars. And this idea of grabbing them from heaven and bringing them to earth and trampling them down. To summarize it simply, this is where the Bible shows us the overlap between the heavenly and earthly forces and the fact that behind everything that happens on the earthly plane, there is behind it a spiritual occurrence as well. You can think of the book of Job, for example, where there is a courtroom scene in the throne room of God's heaven, but then it plays out in the life of Job. Now, one of the biggest lies that Satan has sown in our humanistic idea, our postmodern idea, is that the spiritual realm doesn't exist. And then with that, we have started as Christians to separate it out and we say, well, everything is just material. Everything is just here on this earth. Recognize that everything on this earth is tied to a spiritual reality and vice versa. And if we forget that, we're going to start believing all sorts of lies. But if we understand it, we'll be able to stand strong in the midst of those lies. Here in Daniel, and specifically as we will see in chapter 10, heaven and earth are interwoven. And this idea is the foundation of why the author of like Hebrews, for example, can say that those who are Christians here on earth are also enrolled in the heavenly assembly. You're sitting here in this physical space today, but if you are truly one of God's people, you are part of the assembly of heaven. And every time we gather here on earth, there is a spiritual reality behind it. This is also why Paul can say in Ephesians 6, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Friends, when we have evil rulers in place... In our government in the United States, it's not just an evil physical ruler, it's the fact that there is a spiritual reality behind them. And this has been happening for a long time in the United States. There is a spiritual warfare happening behind our political system, just as it was back in the days of Daniel. Here in Daniel 8, therefore, we can understand that practically on the earthly level, this small horn that has grown exceedingly strong is coming against the people of the glorious land and their sanctuary. And this conflict is not just one of earthly significance, but one of heavenly warfare as well. In fighting against the people of God, the beastly ruler is acting on behalf of the kingdom of darkness and waging war against God's ultimate reign. And to those experiencing this force to come on the earthly level, it would seem as if this ruler could do anything he wanted. He could grasp the very angelic forces of heaven and throw them down to the ground. His power seemed so great, it seemed to rival the prince of the host. This is a fancy way of saying the general over the armies of heaven. Now think for a moment. If you are Daniel in exile... God has previously shown you he was in control and that he had a plan. But even though Daniel had been assured that God's people would once again return to their land and God would reign supreme, here in this vision, Daniel once again saw his people and temple overcome by an evil worldly ruler. 
Now, you can imagine why Daniel finishes this chapter and says he was overcome and lay sick for some days. Daniel had been given a vision of a powerful and destructive king to come, and it disturbed him. Friends, does it disturb you when you see evil rulers in this world acting in a way that shows that they back not the kingdom of heaven, but the kingdom of darkness? It should disturb us. And friends, we as Christians who follow Jesus Christ should be disturbed as to what we see in the world around us. And not just starting this year or last, but for a while. Do you know how this feels, friends? When you feel overcome by a trial so bad that you wonder if it will ever end. Do you read the news lately and think, when will this evil ever end? You see unspeakable horrors that people are doing to each other. You see lies being propagated at a huge level. And you think, when will this ever end? Will there ever be an end to these foolish and evil rulers? Will there never be an end to the celebration and the invention of sin in our society? Will there ever be an end to the illogic that comes in the midst of our society? Well, maybe it's not even at that level for you. Maybe you're a person who, man, you're worried about that, but at the same time, you've got conflict going on in your personal life, and you don't even have time to pay attention to that. Maybe you've got conflict in your job or in your marriage. Maybe it's trying to navigate the heartbreak of parenting in the midst of rebellion. And you think to yourself, Lord, when will this ever end? Maybe you're exhausted at the fight against sin or addiction in your life, and it doesn't seem to lessen no matter how hard you try. You just can't seem to be victorious no matter what attempts you make. Maybe it's an ongoing fight against depression or anxiety that you haven't even shared with anybody. You fight, but you just can't seem to win. Maybe it's that you've lost a loved one, maybe even a spouse, and you're tired of the loneliness, and you think to yourself, Lord, how long? What's causing you to cry out today, how long, O oh Lord? How long? The beautiful part of the message of Daniel 8 is that God hears that cry. And he reminds us that he has determined an end to all of these things. He's determined an end to sin and evil. He's determined an end to the lies around us. He's determined an end to your pain. And it's in that message that we put our hope this morning, amen? You see, for the people of Israel, exiled in Babylon with Daniel, and for the people of Israel that would come hundreds of years later and would see this happen, they needed this message to endure in the midst of the evil and chaos that surrounded them. For God's people, strength comes from knowing that God has determined an end to sin. For God's people, strength comes from knowing that God has determined an end to sin. I know, friends, that it is a weak metaphor, but the reality is, is just as I knew there was an end to those conditioning drills that strengthened me in the midst of wanting to throw up, when I look at the world and I likewise want to throw up and I feel sick to my stomach, as Daniel did, strength comes from knowing that God has determined an end to sin. 
One could easily be led by the wording of verses 9 through 12 to believe that this authority, this leader that would emerge out of the divided Macedonian kingdom would never be stopped. But God makes sure his point is understood. Notice a few more things with me in the text here. First, notice verses 13 and 14. Two of the holy ones, the angels, ask the question of how long this will last, how long the people of God will be trampled down, the very heavenly host will be trampled down, how long the sacrifices will be taken away. This king defiling the temple of Jerusalem in the glorious land and removing the offering. The wording is, notice, the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled. Friends, there is a sovereign allowance of this trial because it is judgment. If you go back and read the history of what was occurring at the time this was fulfilled, as we'll talk about in a moment, what the people of God were doing, the people of Israel were doing, were saying, you know, this life is too hard, so we're not going to continue to trust in Yahweh and follow his truth. We're going to actually buy into the lies of this other group that's pagans that worship a totally different God than we do. This is why it says that truth will be thrown down to the ground. Friends, in John 17, Jesus is clear. What is truth? His word is truth. Not what the world tells us. His word is truth. And because they had aligned not with Yahweh and his truth, but with the truth of these pagan kingdoms, God's judgment was filled up and his indignation His indignation there in verse 19 was appointed and poured out on Israel. And so this king to come, this terrible, evil, wicked, destructive king to come was actually God's wrath upon the people of God. Now for a second you have to pause and think, wait a minute, on the people of God? No, on Israel. And within Israel, the true followers of Yahweh were suffering along with the rest of the nation, but God was giving them the strength that while their compatriots were buying into the pagan lies and the garbage around them, God was strengthening the true followers of his word. And that's what was going on then, and that's what's going on now. It's gone on in the history of God's people. And so there's a sovereign allowance of this trial because God in his just wrath is pouring out wrath on a people that were no longer following him. Now, secondly, notice that there is a specific limit on the time, 2,300 evenings and mornings. This phrasing is referring to the morning and evening ritual of sacrificial offering in the temple. And again, it was going to be removed for a set period of time, which, as we said earlier, is horrifying to Israel. But at that point, the sanctuary was going to be restored to its rightful state. It was going to be purified. Now, interesting, I could go on, but for the sake of time, I won't, but I'll just give you one little tidbit here. I find it interesting in today, the the parallels of today and the church of today, do you guys realize that since the earliest dates of of recording it in the United States, in the early 1900s, the amount of people that that, uh, uh, attached themselves to a church and said, I am a member of a Christian church, hovered around 70 to 75%. And that lasted... Even in its dips, its highest point was right after World War II, it lasted in that area until 2010. Now, do you know the the, the sinking feeling that's occurred in the church, and we all kind of feel it? It wasn't 5%, 10%. It went from upwards of 75% in our country that in 10 years it dropped to 40%. 
The latest poll is that 40% of Americans attach themselves to a church. First time in the history of our country where Christianity is now not in the majority. And friends, you know that most of the people that even answered that, they had the halo effect that they're not actually probably real followers of Jesus Christ. Friends, we are in exile, and if you haven't admitted that to yourself, you're lying to yourself. This is no longer a Christian nation, if it ever was. That's a whole other topic. And so the reality here is that there's a parallel between what's going on with us and what was going on with them. There's a judgment upon the people where even their sacrifice was removed. And I wonder if maybe there's a judgment upon the church for the apathy that we show. The sacrificial offerings were taken away, but God gave strength to the true followers, even in the midst of that situation, that their offerings would once again be reinitiated and purification would come. He determined an end, even in that horrible situation. And friends, he's determined an end even in our situation. Third, notice verse 19. He says, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation. For it refers to the appointed time of the end. People have wrongly misinterpreted this as talking about the time of the end of the world. No, it's the end of the indignation. It's talking about a specific time in history a specific time in Israel's past where God poured out wrath upon them, and he's talking about the time at which that will end. This is not the end of the world, as many might read it, but the end of the transgression of the people of Israel that is indicated. Now, all of these items are intended to speak to Daniel and really all of God's people that despite what they see around them, despite what they feel, God is in control and moving the events of the world toward their final conclusion. So even in the midst of the worst trials, dear saint, we can take heart. We can be strengthened that God has determined an end. Now we might then respond with a bit of human insolence. God, why do you wait so long? Aren't we there yet? I I looked at the news the other day and I saw the number of murders and shootings and people doing all sorts of unspeakable things to them. And I cried out in my insolence, God, what are you waiting for? Have we not hit that end yet? Why don't you just finish things now when I want them to? (laughs) Have you ever been in that space, anybody? Or am I the only sinner in the room? Anybody? Okay. Well, the answer is that he is purposeful, way more patient than me, and he's far more merciful, praise God. Remember how God describes his own character in Exodus 34 just at the beginning He says, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Friends, God is extremely merciful and patient because he wants to give everyone, including you and me, time and space to repent and turn to him. Imagine if he pulled the trigger on his plan five minutes before you were found in Christ. Praise God for his patience. He's so patient. But that patience will eventually end and his just wrath will be handed out and it will be right when it does. The same idea is indicated in verse 23 of Daniel 8. It says, at the latter end of the four leaders of the Greek kingdom, notice with me, it says, when the transgressors have reached their limit. Verse 23, when the transgressors have reached their limit. You see, friends, God is so patient and so kind, always longing for mankind to repent, but he is also just. 
And so when he looks at sin and sees it reach a certain point, he will say in his perfect will and plan, enough. Parents, you know what I'm talking about, right? You watch your children bicker back and forth, and you think, oh man, this is a great learning lesson. It'll be nice for them to work this out. This will help with social skills, right? You guys know how this works, right? Oh, look, look, it's going, okay, they're going to figure it out. Yeah, I'll just let it go a bit longer. And then you see one of them winding up with the fist of fellowship for their sibling. (laughs) And what do you do as a good parent? You jump in, and what do you say? Enough! Now we got to put a stop to it. Friends, God is no different. He's a good father. And there's a certain point at which his just nature will say enough because God has a plan that will not be stopped and he will stop sin in its tracks. Remember back in the story of Genesis when God is covenanting with Abraham, he uses a similar idea. This is Genesis 15, 13 through 16. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners or exiles in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. That's a long time. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. Notice, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. He's saying in this that the Israelites would be in the trial of their lives, being enslaved in Egypt. But during that time, God was working something else out with the Amorites, the people in Canaan, allowing them room to repent or, in unrepentant rebellion, complete their iniquity to the point where they could be punished for their idolatry and sin. Once their sin was completed, God would use Israel through the exodus and invasion of Canaan to fulfill his plan. And that plan goes down even to the lower level of Abraham's very life and the day of his death. Friends, it is never a good idea to think that because you're getting away with sin, God is not paying attention. He's merely giving you room to repent. But at a certain point, when your sin is fulfilled, he will bring wrath against you. And that should make all of us work out our salvation in fear and trembling. And so when the things don't make sense to us around us, we need to humble ourselves and recognize that in some way, shape, or form outside of what we can see, God has his reasons. And his reasons are right and good. doesn't matter what we feel. To Daniel, to exiled Israel, life just seemed chaotic and sinful But God had determined an end. And what was that end? Well, the most ferocious of the kingdoms and kings that had been foretold in Daniel's vision would come to pass in the person of a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. Out of the Seleucid Empire, that empire in the yellow there, Antiochus would rise and make war against the people of Israel that had come back to their land, the glorious land. Now, an apocryphal set of books that is contained in the Catholic canon, but not in our Protestant canon, describes that period of time, and that's 1st and 2nd Maccabees. Now, these books are not part of our canon, so we do not use them to determine doctrine or the character of God, but they have long been looked to, even by Protestant theologians, for historical purposes as they describe the revolt of Israel led by Judas Maccabeus in the second century BC against this horrible king named Antiochus Epiphanes. If you're not familiar with any of this, just think Hanukkah. 
Hanukkah is celebrated out of the events of this Maccabean revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes. Now let me read to you sections from the very beginning of 1 Maccabees. This is 1 Maccabees chapter 1, verse 1. And I'll read through portions of verse 10. After Alexander, son of Philip, the Macedonian who came from the land of Kittim had defeated King Darius of the Persians and the Medes. Does this sound familiar to any prophecy we've just been reading? He succeeded him as king. He fought many battles, conquered strongholds, and put to death the kings of the earth. He advanced to the ends of the earth and plundered many nations. When the earth became quiet before him, he was exalted and his heart was lifted up. After Alexander had reigned 12 years, he died. Then his officers began to rule, each one in his own place. They all put crowns on after his death, and so did their descendants after them for many years. And they caused many evils on the earth. From them came forth a sinful root, Antiochus Epiphanes, son of King Antiochus. Now, friends, Antiochus was an evil ruler. He was so evil that the rabbis of the day named him simply the Wicked. How would you like that nickname on the back of your jersey? The Wicked. We're not talking Boston wicked here. We're talking wicked evil, okay? He was so arrogant that he was a king, as Daniel calls him, of bold face. He named himself Epiphanes, which means God manifest. It means God incarnate. Now, is that a problem for us as Christians? Absolutely. He was proclaiming himself to be God in human flesh. He was known for his arrogance and trickery. Sinful and unfaithful rulers in Israel, as I said, wanted to step into covenant with him. But friends, you can never, ever make peace with someone who is motivated by lies and by the enemy. And so they tried to step into to covenant with him, but God's, uh, God's wrath came upon them for it. And this is from 1 Maccabees 1.29. It says this, Two years later, the king sent to the cities of Judah a chief collector of tribute, and he came to Jerusalem with a large force. Deceitfully, he spoke peaceable words to them, and they believed him, but he suddenly fell upon the city, dealt it a severe blow, and destroyed many people of Israel. He plundered the city, burned it with fire, and tore down its houses and its surrounding walls. Worst of all, 1 Maccabees tells us that Antiochus put an end to the worship of Yahweh, placing pagan temples throughout Israel and descending on the very Holy of Holies and desecrating it by putting an altar to the Greek god Zeus and sacrificing a pig there in blatant mockery of the purification laws of the Jews. This is what Daniel 8 is referring to in verse 13 when it speaks of a transgression that makes desolate. Daniel 8 so perfectly captures the time and the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes in prophetic foretelling that it's caused literary critics throughout the years to doubt the time that it was written. They doubt that it was written at the Babylonian exile with Daniel, and instead they say it had to have been written during or after the Maccabean revolt. There is no way, they would say, that a prophecy this direct and correct could have been produced 400 plus years earlier. But even in the midst of this trial, the Maccabean revolt, the people of Israel would look to the hope given by the book of Daniel and the fact that they could take heart because God had determined an end to the trial they found themselves in. And as the books of the Maccabeans recorded, that trial did indeed end. Daniel 8.25 says that Antiochus would be broken, but by no human hand. The freedom fighters known as the Maccabeans were able to fight back and defeat Antiochus and his forces. 
This from 1 Maccabees 4. It says, Then Judas and his brothers said, See, our enemies are crushed. Let us go up to cleanse the sanctuary and dedicate it. Now, the historical dates between the original defilement by Antiochus and the restoration of sacrifice in the temple are not 100% clear. But most historians agree that it falls generally in line with the 1,150 days of sacrifice that was cut off or 2,300 mornings and evenings. For the people of Israel, it was encouraging. It was strengthening to know that God had determined an end to their suffering. Friends, don't get wrapped up in these numbers in apocalyptic literature. Get the point and principle behind them. This number is not given to us to tell us when Jesus will return. It is given to us to tell us that God has determined an end and it will stand. As for Antiochus, 2 Maccabees 9 records this quote. But the all-seeing Lord, the God of Israel, struck him with an incurable and invisible blow. As soon as he stopped speaking, he was seized with a pain in his bowels, for which there was no relief. And with sharp internal tortures, he died. For a people in exile, they needed the strength that comes from knowing that God has determined an end to sin. For later Israelites at the Maccabean Revolt, they could likewise look to Daniel 8 and receive that same strength from knowing that God had determined an end to the sin that surrounded them. And today, friends, we can gain that same strength. No matter what you are encountering, no matter for what you are crying out, how long, O Lord, Daniel 8 gives us a similar message. Take heart. God has determined an end that cannot be defeated. In Acts 1.7, in response to the question of when the kingdom will be returned to Israel, Jesus said to the disciples, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. God has fixed times in which he will accomplish his purpose. He did so with the nation of Israel. He did so with the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ. And he will do so again. And just as Jesus was not defeated in death, but actually rose in victory three days later, neither will God's purposes and plans over all be defeated. Our job then is to merely endure in the midst of the suffering, to stand firm in proclaiming the truth that God reigns through Christ and that he is coming again to judge the living and the dead, and that all should repent of their sins and follow him in the midst of this trusting his plan and his purpose. And so perhaps this morning you are a person that is completely broken by the state of our country, by the state of our culture, by the state of our world, and the direction we have been heading and are headed. But friend, in the midst of your concern and worry, take heart. God has determined an end that cannot be thwarted no matter what our surrounding circumstances tell us. No matter if our country is in the middle of judgment for our sin or not, God has determined an end. And God will come again. He will judge based on sin and righteousness and he will put an end to the sin we see around us. Just not yet. But when the fullness of the sin of mankind is complete, God will put an end to it. But as I said earlier, perhaps the trial you're walking through is not at that level, but it is something more close to home. Maybe you've lost a loved one and you are heartbroken at their passing 
and you long to see them again. Take heart. God has determined an end to your loneliness. So press into Christ and his people and stand firm in the midst of endurance. Maybe you're in the midst of a struggle with raising little kiddos that are rebelling left and right and you just keep wondering, is it ever going to end? Take heart. God has determined an end to even their rebellion. So keep enduring. Keep persisting. Keep doing what you know to do and pointing them to Jesus and his word. Trust in God. Maybe you're struggling with sin and you just can't seem to break free. And it will take everything in you, even today, to give it one more shot at fighting. Well, take heart, because God has determined an end of the battle within your flesh. Keep looking to Christ, keep persistent in prayer, and keep fighting. And don't raise up in arrogance thinking you're the one that gets to know when the end should be or determine it yourself. But trust in God that he has determined an end and he will hold you strong in the midst. Perhaps, like me, you are done with COVID. Amen? <laughs> and you are wondering if the restrictions will ever come to an end. Well, take heart, friends, because even in the midst of COVID, God has determined an end that cannot be thwarted. In all these situations, we begin to understand why saints of old thought of this life as an endurance race. I think of Paul in 2 Timothy. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Makes sense to me. The older I get, the more sin I see around me and the more sin I have to fight within me, the more I think of that day of relief when I will see the face of Jesus and my faith will become sight. And how wonderful a day that will be. Jesus has determined an end, friends. God's people are called in the middle of trial and suffering to endure and in doing so to proclaim the glory of God to whom they have freely given themselves. And enduring through the suffering of the trials that surround us, we are able to proclaim a greater truth that God is the sovereign king and he reigns over the world and he has determined an end that cannot be thwarted. Amen? Amen. So stay strong, dear saint, and take heart, for God has a plan and a purpose, not necessarily for your comfort, like many want to tell you, but for his glory and for your good. And so we will trust in him. Just as he declared to Daniel, we can take heart because God has determined an end that cannot be defeated.